Morning again. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ben King, one of the elders here at Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, and, and I have the, the great privilege and the sobering responsibility of regularly teaching and preaching God's Word here. Uh, if you're visiting here with us this morning for our first uh, worship service, uh, thank you for being here to celebrate the work that the Lord is doing here in Williamstown. Uh, I hope you are as encouraged by your time here as I am to have you here. Uh, this morning we begin a series of sermons through the Gospel of Mark, and I suppose it's worth mentioning at this point uh, that it will be our regular practice to preach consecutively through books of the Bible. Uh, above all else, we long to be a congregation that is founded upon the Word of God. Uh, one of the ways, of course, that we want to accomplish that is see our Worship services shaped by the Word of God. So the songs that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, and most especially the sermon that is preached, built and founded on the Word of God. We, of course, believe that God has spoken powerfully and sufficiently and clearly in His Word, and that uh, it's our desire then to week after week sit under its ministry to us, uh, knowing that it's through God's Word that we are strengthened and that we are enabled by His Holy Spirit to grow and mature in Christ. It's also the Word of God brought to bear on our hearts by the Spirit of God that emboldens us for the mission of God, uh, namely the faithful proclamation of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, so with that said, we begin with the Gospel of Mark. And it's a, it's a fitting place to begin, uh, because in many ways this is a sermon about beginnings, uh, not just any beginning, uh, but a particular beginning, a most important beginning, a foundational beginning, and that uh, beginning is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So uh, if you have uh, a copy of the scriptures, which by the way, let me mention, if you don't have a, a, a copy of the Bible uh, in front of you, there are a stack of Bibles out on the front. You will not offend me. You will not bother me in the least if you don't have one and you want to get up and just go grab a Bible. Uh, but if you have a uh, copy, you can turn to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Uh, if it's in the, the Bibles that we've provided, uh, it would be on page 836. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will read the passage together. So let me, let me pray. Our Father, we indeed thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have spoken clearly and powerfully and sufficiently, uh, that it's your word that gives life, uh, that we are strengthened and nourished as we hear your word ministered to us. And uh, we pray now that in this time you would speak, that you would speak to our hearts and that Christ would be exalted. Uh, that by your spirit you would strengthen us to know you more, to love you more, and to joyfully obey you more. Uh, be glorified, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1. I should turn there myself. Let me read for us. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. More than any generation that has come before us, we are a generation that is inundated by news. Some good news, some bad news. We are bombarded by a 24-hour news cycle that informs us about everything from foreign affairs to election updates, from the latest entertainment gossip to local basketball scores. And the the constant barrage of stories can make it... um, overwhelming so that it's hard to know what news is important and what is not. Uh, The very first thing we are confronted here with in Mark's prologue is the announcement of good news. And it's it's Mark's main purpose for writing. It's his, his main theme, his primary goal to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the word gospel means. Gospel is good news. Uh, But I I want you to see from the outset here that this is not just any good news. This isn't uh, just another feel-good story rolling through the headlines. In in the original language, Mark uses the word uh, gospel in the singular instead of the plural, which is its more common use in in Roman Greco literature. The question is, is why it's a subtle yet very powerful linguistic way where Mark is saying, this is not just some good news among other good news. He's saying this is the good news. This is the good news that makes all other good news pale in comparison. It is the good news that casts a shadow over all other good news. It is the good news to end all good news. It is the, the, the news story to end all news stories. There has never been and never will be good news like this good news. And what could possibly make this news so good? This news is not merely the daily unfolding of events around the world. It is the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
It is the news that the Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, who has eternally existed in loving unity with the Father and the Spirit has become a man, Jesus, and this man is the promised Messiah. Now that's the word Christ. It's the word Christ means, the Messiah. It, it, it's not Jesus' last name. It's not like Jesus Christ, his last name. It's Jesus the Christ. It functions more like a, like a title. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised by God who would come as the Savior of his people to make all things new. The good news is good because it is the news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, is the gospel good news to you this morning? Is, is it sweet to your ears? Is it a thrill to your soul? Maybe you misheard me. I'm not asking, have you heard the good news? What I'm asking is, is the gospel good news to you? That is, when you hear the good news, do you hear it as good? Maybe you're here this morning and have never known the gospel as good news. To you, the coming of Jesus Christ is just maybe another story cycling through the headlines. It has no bearing on your life, doesn't shape how you think or act, what you love or what you value. If that's the case... Can I just humbly suggest, can I just humbly suggest that you have not truly heard or known the goodness of the good news? But I pray this morning that God gives you and us all ears to hear the good news. So, so how can we begin to wrap our minds around the goodness of this good news? Uh, our passage this morning takes us through Three movements that mark out the beginning of Jesus' ministry and thus the beginning of the gospel, the good news. So here we go. Three movements. This is what I'm going to take you through. Three movements, the, the preparation for Jesus' ministry, the confirmation of Jesus' ministry, and the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. I'll, I'll, I, I know. We don't, so this is new for us. we got the little sermon note thing in the, in the back of the bulletin. So if you're a note taker, I'll say them again. But here we go, the preparation for Jesus' ministry. Look with me again, starting in verse 1 uh, to verse 5. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The good news begins with the announcement that God's own messenger, John the baptizer, had come to prepare his people for the coming of the Messiah, just as the Lord had promised in the scriptures. The, the, the picture is one of a coming king and the arrival, uh, his arrival and the preparations that would need to be made in light of his coming. Uh, but of course, in a 21st century democracy, the, the coming of a king is a little foreign, a little distant to imagine. So maybe imagine uh, like an athlete coming to a local high school. So I remember, uh, I grew up in Glassboro, went to Glassboro High School, and I remember when we heard the announcement 
that Gary Brackett was coming to our high school. Anyone know who Gary Brackett is? No one knows who Gary Brackett is. So Gary Brackett is a Glassboro High School graduate who went on to play for the Indianapolis Colts. He's a linebacker for the Indianapolis Colts. And so Gary Brackett, we get this announcement, Gary Brackett is coming to Glassboro High School, and everyone's excited. And the administration comes on the, you know, the PA speaker, and all the preparations that we need to make, right? We've got to make sure that the, de the decorations are good, and we've got to get you know, the pep band ready. And most importantly, of course, the administration wants to make sure the student body is going to behave themselves for when this guy shows up, right? So we've got to make the appropriate preparations. In a similar fashion, we find that the Lord sent his own messenger to announce the coming of the Messiah so that they could prepare for his coming. But how? How are they to prepare? What is the kind of preparation that needs to be made? It's, it's not a pep band. It's not decorations. It's not fixing up their behavior, uh, which was needed to ready themselves. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. John appears in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, John's message was that the people needed to ready themselves for the good news of the coming of their Messiah by acknowledging and repenting of their sin. To properly, to properly ready themselves for the coming of the one who would rescue them from their sin, they first needed to, to know and believe their need for rescue. You see, the good news is, is good news because of the bad news. They, they needed to see their sin in all its ugliness before the good news of the coming of the Messiah would be sweet to them. So how would you respond if at your annual checkup, the doctors, the doctor rolls in and is like, hey, good news, you're cured. We found a cure, you're going to live. You'd probably be like, uh, thanks, uh, didn't know I was sick, didn't know I needed to be cured, right? But if, if you knew that you had this diagnosis, a, a, a terminal diagnosis, and the doctor comes in and says, good news, there's a cure. Well, all of a sudden, that good news becomes very sweet, a thrill to your soul. And so it's in that vein that, that we need to, to see our sin before we can appreciate the good news. You see, the, the good news of a cure is not good news unless you know that you're sick. And so John appears in the wilderness proclaiming the diagnosis of their sickness, proclaiming the people's need for a Messiah and ultimately proclaiming their need for the forgiveness of sin. Now, kids, I see some kids in here. Uh, did you notice something strange about how John was described, John the baptizer was described in this passage? Go ahead, you can call it out. Was there anything strange about John the Baptist that you remember that we read? What was he wearing and what was he eating? He was eating locusts. That's kind of weird. Dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. So how would you feel if mom and dad, after the service, present you with a nice new outfit of camel's hair? You good with that? Or, or how about for lunch if your parents uh, served up a nice dish of grasshoppers with honey? You excited about that for lunch? That's what we're having for lunch after the service. <laughs> 
So John, his, uh, his way of dress and his, his diet was strange even for his day. Uh, now, John may have been a bit strange, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he had taken it upon himself to dress like the prophet Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the Tishbite, an Old Testament prophet who spent his life calling his nation and his people to repentance. John's dress and diet was a protest against the worldliness and the sin of Israel by which they failed to truly see their need for a Messiah. And so he preached, John did, just as Elijah did, repentance and their need for the forgiveness of of, of sins. Uh, Friends, is the gospel good news to you? Do you this morning know your need? If it's not good news to you this morning, if it isn't, if it isn't the most soul-thrilling news that you have ever heard, you, you just haven't seen your need. So how might we see our need this morning? Let's look at how John showed Israel its need for a Messiah. The first thing he does is he shows them uh, how they have no sense, there's no real sense of goodness in themselves. He dismantles any sense of goodness they have in themselves. How do, you, how, how do I get there? Where do I see that in the text? Uh, it's in the fact that John was calling the Jews to be baptized. The only real occasion for ritual baptism in John's day was the conversion of a Gentile to Judaism. The divide between Jew and Gentile was, of course, sharp. The Jews relished their position as the privileged people of God who had the oracles of God given to them, uh, the privilege of knowing God's law. But consequently, they despised the Gentiles as those who worshipped all kinds of different false gods. Uh, And in the event that a Gentile wished to convert to Judaism, they underwent this uh, ritual of baptism, uh, which was meant to symbolize their need to be cleansed from the worship of false gods, and from their sin. So in effect, listen, get this, in effect, by uh, John calling the Jews to come and be baptized, he was saying to them, they need to acknowledge they are no better than the Gentiles. They need to acknowledge they are no better off. There is no internal, inherent goodness in them that makes them any more moral, any more equipped, any more uh, uh, prepared to receive the, the, the Messiah than the Gentiles themselves. The, the, the divide between Jew and Gentile produced a common temptation for Jews to believe that their goodness was intrinsically attached to their ancestry and their heritage. But you see that John would call the Jews to be baptized was a direct shot, a direct shot at any uh, goodness they thought they possessed by virtue of their being Jewish. Though they were indeed the privileged people of God, neither their ethnic ancestry nor their heritage could mask the fact that their hearts were just as dark, just as sinful, and just as needy as the next person. There was no way that they could look down their noses at the Gentiles because they themselves were just as evil. Uh, The Apostle Paul makes this exact point in his epistle to the Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 3, he writes this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So let me ask you, do you suppose that there is some inherent goodness in you? Maybe like the Jews, you are content to measure your goodness against that of other people. Does it, does it offend your senses to think of the people our society deems most evil and realize that before God, at your core, you are just as sinful, just as evil, and that the same potential for terrible, awful sin resides in you. Or maybe your goodness is wrapped up in just looking down at others. Sure, you have your issues, but at least you're not like that guy. Don't you know what resides in your own hearts? Do you know what would happen if the Lord were to lift his hand of restraining grace? If the Lord were, allow, were to allow you to give full vent to your sin, you would make the vilest criminal look like a Boy Scout. Brothers and sisters, before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be measured against one another, but against the righteous standard of God's law. Before the law of God, we are all exposed and laid bare and no one can say that he is without guilt. The second thing John does is he helps them to see their sin for what it really was. Notice the, the location of John's ministry. Uh, where does John's ministry take place? Uh, in the wilderness. He is a voice crying out in the wilderness. And we read that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. The theme of wilderness is rich throughout the entire scripture. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the wilderness is this very, very rich theme. And it symbolizes the place of Israel's idolatry and unbelief. That John called the people out of the city into the wilderness would have been a very obvious reminder to the people of their history. A history that was marked by faithlessness, by idolatry by law-breaking of the sin of God's people, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 78, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. It was in the wilderness that they groaned and they complained against God after he powerfully delivered them out of the hands of of the Egyptians. It was in the, the wilderness that they made for themselves a golden calf and declared, this is our God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You see, it was in, in the wilderness that the people could see the heinousness of their sin. It wasn't just that they had broken some laws and transgressed some commandments. Rather, it was that they had rebelled against the living God. Their sin was not just against one another, but ultimately, even as David writes in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. It's in the wilderness that they can see their, that their sin is an offense to a holy God. That it's against God that they have rebelled, against God that they have sinned. 
And do we think that we are any different? This is the sum and the substance of our sin, that we have rebelled against God and have chased after other gods. We, we have run to every pleasure, every comfort, every fleeting amusement the world has to offer rather to the God who made us and who promises to satisfy our souls. And in this way, we have incurred the just judgment of God for he is not a God who is indifferent to evil. The third thing is that John shows them the hopelessness of their condition. Now, you're going to have to track with me on this one. Look at verse 7, Mark 1, verse 7. It says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we see both their helplessness to remedy their situation and the promise of one who can. But before we rush to the promise, would you just, just linger here with me a little longer on the bad news? For the more we understand the bad news, the more sweet the good news will be when it comes. John's baptism was a baptism of water. It was a demonstration and symbol of their need for cleansing but it had no power to actually affect such a cleansing. They, they needed to be washed clean of their sin, but sin isn't like dirt that gets on your body that you can wash off in a river. No, they needed an internal cleansing from it. Uh, from its, uh, it it's from within that sin emerges. Uh, uh, Trevor read earlier on from James 1, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each, listen, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, we have a desire problem. And we have a desire problem because we have a heart problem. Apart from God's grace, our hearts are desperately sick, inclined only to evil, and our heart's disposition is sin. And it manifests in our lives a thousand times every day, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Which one of you would volunteer to have your thoughts projected up on a screen in this building? We know this about ourselves. We know our own hearts. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet put it this way. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The insinuation, of course, is the Ethiopian can't change his spots. Or that he can't change his skin. And the, the leopard can't change his spots. And likewise, we who are evil cannot do good. Because of our hearts. Because they're... They are, they're broken. And brothers and sisters, apart from God's intervening grace, we are helplessly and hopelessly lost in our sin. But, but, John announced that one was coming, one mightier than he, one whom John was not worthy of even untying his sandal, one who could baptize with the Holy Spirit, who could cleanse our very hearts 
and make us new. Indeed, John's baptism was a signal of their absolute moral bankruptcy, but even the offer to repent implies the, 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 the possibility of forgiveness of sins. And think about this. While the wilderness was indeed the place of Israel's idolatry and unbelief and faithlessness, the wilderness was also the place where God met his people. It was the place where he carried them. It was the place where he provided for them, where God covenanted with them. And it's the place where God promised to speak tenderly to Israel and to woo her back to himself, saying these words from Hosea, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever, says the Lord. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. But, but who is this mightier one? Who is this one that is coming so that Israel and so that we might know the steadfast love and the mercy of God? Mark 1, verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We've seen the, the preparation for Jesus' ministry and now we see the confirmation of Jesus' ministry. Verse 9 identifies Jesus as the personification of the good news and as the one who is mightier than John. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn open and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus all to confirm his identity as the Son of God and as the promised Messiah, that the, that the Spirit descended up upon God was an unmistakable signal to his identity as the Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And, and that he is the very Son of God is confirmed by his Father's word. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. But I wonder if you're scratching your head at this point. If you're, I wonder if you're scratching your head a little bit. I, I just spent 15 minutes telling you how John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. A, rep, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus being baptized? You ever think about that? Why is Jesus submitting himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? In Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, John asks that same question, and Jesus responds, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, that is John, consented. Brothers and sisters, see here at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, his commitment to fulfill all the requirements of God's law in your place. Here is the Christ standing in the place of sinners. Do you see that? Standing in the place of sinners, submitting to a baptism of repentance. Why? So that he might fulfill all righteousness. So he might fulfill all of the law 
of God that we could never achieve on our own. What a sight it must have been to hear the sound of the Father's voice booming out, declaring the pleasure he had in his Son and confirming his ministry as the Messiah. Even in the the picture of Jesus' baptism, you have the gospel in a picture, right? You have Jesus submitting to baptism. Baptism itself is a picture of death and resurrection and him standing in the place of sinners and securing for his people a righteousness they could never secure for their own. But brothers and sisters, we can't linger long there because Jesus doesn't linger long there. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Just as soon as heaven is torn open, hell opens its mouth. And Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why? Why? Because if Jesus is truly to stand in our place, he must experience real temptation. And so he goes into the wilderness. And we're again reminded of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness where they were tempted by every manner of sin and failed. Forty years they spent wandering in the wilderness, complaining and groaning and grumbling against God. But where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus will succeed. This scene should also remind us of um, another place. Not a, not a wilderness, but a garden. The Garden of Eden, lush and abundant in the provision of God. The place where Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God and sinned. Uh, to Adam was given dominion over all the animals. And so when the serpent came in, it was his right and his duty to protect the garden and destroy the serpent. But again, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. For Jesus goes into the wilderness and there endures every manner of temptation and signals to all God's people that he will have the final word and that he will defeat all evil and all sin and all death, for he is the one spoken of when God preaches to Adam and Eve the gospel for the very first time, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. With those God words, God promised that he would send one who would crush the head of the enemy, of the serpent, and so bring an end to all evil and all sin and all death. And brothers and sisters, God always keeps his promises. Here in the wilderness, we see Jesus, both God and man, as the very one who can and will defeat the enemy of all his people, that we might be set free from our bondage to sin and death so that he might become for us a great high priest. Trevor again read this passage, our assurance of pardon, Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet 
very important yet, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The last thing we see is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. After Jesus' ministry is confirmed, his public ministry begins, and it begins with a sermon. His ministry begins with a sermon. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. All that the prophets had foretold centuries before was pointing to this climactic moment. The arrival of the the Messiah, the inbreaking of the kingdom, was the inbreaking of the King, Jesus Christ. The good news of God's kingdom is that the King has arrived. But do you see, brothers and sisters, do you see that this should, be, this should not be good news. That the arrival of the king should not be good news. By rights, when the just and righteous king arrives in the world that he has made, where the very people he created have rebelled against him, he ought to come as a conqueror to exact vengeance. But, but he doesn't. He doesn't come to judge. He comes to rescue And so calls to those very people, those very ones that had rebelled against him, to repent, to believe the gospel. He he doesn't come to bring all the might of his powerful kingdom crashing down on the, the, the rebel creation of his. But he comes offering entrance into the kingdom. You see, the good news can't just be that the king has arrived. The good news has to include how we might actually find entrance into the kingdom. And it's this very thing that we find as Jesus proclaims, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But but how can we gain entrance into this kingdom? On what basis can we be made right with the one that we have rebelled against Christian this morning, on what basis are you this morning justified before God? We have examined the the beginning of the gospel, and, and it is just that, a beginning. All of these things, Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, are precursors to the climax of his saving work. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave whereby he endured all of God's wrath for sin and whereby he was raised to victory over sin and death so that all who trust in him might know the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life in his kingdom. Uh, but but, but isn't, isn't there something you must do, though? Isn't there something you have to do this morning? Isn't there some work you need to bring, some ritual you need to perform? Hear again the words of the Savior King. Repent and believe the gospel. What is it to repent and believe? It is to turn away from sin and to turn to God in faith. To to simply trust 
that King Jesus in his coming has come to fulfill the law in your place, to bear God's wrath for sin in your place on the cross, to rise from the grave victorious over sin and death in your place. That's it. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Here's what, you know what we bring to the table? All we bring is our need. That's it. And Jesus Christ is sufficient to meet our need. Wholly sufficient to meet our need. I pray that you know how good this good news is. If, if, if you've never heard that good news, if you've never heard the gospel, or maybe you're hearing it in a new way for the first time, and you have questions, I would love to talk to you. I'm going to be in the back there. Feel free to pull me aside, and I would love to get together with you sometime, and, and, and uh, you can ask questions, and we can talk about this good news. Uh, brothers and sisters, I pray that you never, ever move on from this good news. I pray that you, you never uh, go on to something more than the good news, because the good news is, it's, it's, it is the foundation, it is our source. It is the place where God, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his justice is revealed most clearly. And as we continue on here as a new church, I pray that we would never move on from this good news, but only that we would go deeper and deeper into it. And now we have the wonderful opportunity to remember and celebrate that good news together in communion. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we indeed thank you for this good news. And we pray that it would indeed be good news to us. Surely the world would seek to draw our attention uh, to all kinds of different things. But may we ever be fixed on this, that you have sent your son into the world for sinful people, that Christ might live and die and rise again for their sake, that they might know salvation by faith and by faith alone. Lord, would you, would you do this work in us by your spirit for the glory of your name? Bless, Father, the, the preaching of your word. Accomplish all your purposes in the hearts of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.